when we act together will we have the courage to change our lives and the world around us. And this is why community is such an important aspect of our human experience. Welcome to the Community Heroes podcast, where we celebrate and share the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. I'm your host, Catherine Mann. On this show, we share the stories of people using their skills, experiences, businesses, and involvement through sporting clubs and service organizations to enrich the lives of those around them. Community is so much more than the town you live in. It's a group of people that care about each other and feel they belong together. They are the people that support you when you need it the most. They're the ones who share the same ideas, interests and attributes that you do. Now let's hear from the heroes that are pioneering, changing and impacting their communities. Hello and welcome to the Community Heroes Show. Today I have the incredible Lauren Sherson joining us. Lauren is an entrepreneurial behaviorist who develops people, ventures and communities. Her mission is to help people create healthy minds and healthy businesses through social connectedness and generating local business activity. Lauren has spent a decade lecturing at universities in entrepreneurship started and exited two data companies and was a Liberal candidate for Melbourne in the 2019 federal election. She is also currently running for the local Melbourne City Council. Lauren looks at psychology and entrepreneurship and politics of a situation, specifically the social interactions that make progress. She is on the board of Self-Employed Australia, advocating economic policy and has also founded four businesses to help Australians through the COVID pandemic. These include driving gigs to live entertainment, a safe place for artists that provide them with paid gigs. She's also done an e-book called Backyard Businesses for parents to give their children entrepreneurial skills to prepare them for their unknown futures. She's also started the Local Venture Group, which has invested in two ventures designed to increase social connectedness and drive local business activity. Thank you so much for joining us, Lauren. Thank you for having me here, Catherine. What an incredible, uh, very busy businesswoman you are. Oh, indeed. It's a... Uh, uh, it's not exhausting when you love what you do and you, you're so passionate about it. It's always the next, the next. And so the greatest challenge is maintaining focus to keep going. And uh, I think after 20 years of being an adult, I finally found focus to come down the middle. Yeah, that's brilliant. And you're so right. It's like when you love what you do, you just find ways to do what to do more of it. Absolutely. And I love how you've really embraced in certain ways these times of COVID and a lot of the uncertainty and isolation and harness that frustration and that energy from that into being able to provide new and different ways, quite innovative concepts as well. I've got to say they're brilliant to support other businesses. So can you share a little bit more about, you know, that uh, and how you came up with the ideas and and what that's all looked like for you? Uh, Certainly. 
When you look at entrepreneurship, it's all about identifying chaos that's going on around the world. And part of that chaos on a large scale are the rise and fall of empires over thousands of years. And so what happened when COVID hit this year is that I found myself in an unusual place for me where the timing was right. Everything that I've been studying and teaching and practicing, all my mentors and books that I've read, it all came flooding down together because we are in chaos. And we're in chaos as a city, a state, a nation, and as a world. And I don't believe that since the, the dinosaurs were extinct, we've really had a scenario where chaos, chaos has been so pervasive so globally to billions of people at once. Yeah, so true. Uh, when you're looking at that chaos, the first part that comes in is what are the actual problems here and, and how can we solve them? And that, that's how Driving Gigs came about and that was the first of the ventures uh, back in March. And that was when looking at there was a rise of driving cinemas in America as a result of COVID. And so when I was looking at that and the Grand Prix had just been cancelled in Melbourne that weekend and I'm based in Albert Park so, and the Grand Prix is here locally and so that had a really big impact. And what ended up happening is I went online to look for a mini car club because I've got a mini to see if there were cars driving around because I wanted to do something with motorsport on that weekend. And that's when it dawned on me that being in your car was a COVID safe way to be with other people and so from there noticing what's happening with drive-in cinemas overseas and that's in the the flash of genius here oh my goodness what if we could have a rock concert in your car what if we could have a stage potentially down the St Kilda Triangle or other locations multiple locations around Australia or in, in regional areas as well as the city and music is so pertinent to the heart and soul of how we live and as we're now that was back in March if we're now looking six months past then the destruction of our live music has destroyed our culture and it's also part of a mental health strategy and how people are able to cope if you look through war times or other periods, again, in history, uh, you'll find I love history. That's what I spend my nights reading. That's my brain break from everything else. And people write songs and they share music. And, and music also existed before language was invented. There was beat, there was rhythm, and if you think of the African drums, and how can we find a way to live through COVID while we still have our music? Yeah, it's so true. And it's it is, it's a real something that connects people is is a love and a passion for music, but that creative and there, there's been you know, hundreds and thousands of researchers done on the benefits of music. But I think through this time we're wanting to connect, but we need to also recognise that it's doing it in a safe and meaningful way to, to you know, safeguard uh, the community. So it's such a great solution uh, in so many ways. It's genius. Thank you. We've had so much community support for it. 
returned. We haven't been able to hold our first event yet because there are restrictions on the number of people that can gather. However, uh, looking for a lineup this summer and to get it out there and, and to bring back music and to bring back the arts and bring back our culture, which is, has just been suppressed and uh, that that can no longer be. And so this is our way that we can come out and we can be in our cars and experience it and and beat as one together. Yeah, that's so good. <laughs> and so can you share a little bit about your backstory and from where, you know, you've sort of come from in, in your life journey? Oh, so my... <laughs> Well, when I was younger, I, I grew up in public housing uh, just with my mum and that had an enormous impact, as you can imagine, on the access to opportunities that I had in the world. And that's also impacted my creativity and how I see the world because I couldn't go out and buy something. I had to make something. And my grandma was a dressmaker and she lived at Phillip Island. So every weekend, every school holidays, I'd be making craft. And even my desk right now, my office has turned into a studio and as well as making masks and making a skirt and making other garments. And that led me, even as a child, I had my first invention when I was eight or eight years of age or my first business, I should say. And to this day, I still have an uncanny knack of finding four-leaf clovers. And so I would find them, laminate them. The small ones I would sell for a dollar, the large ones for $2. And I had a stall outside the front of the flats where I live. So I was making $50 a day back in the 1980s, which is more than I make some days <laughs> as an adult. And, and then at 11, I had an invention as I saw a, a cat that had been hit by a car and I turned around to my mum and said, if the cat was wearing a reflective collar, then maybe the car would have been able to see the cat at nighttime. And my uncle ended up investing. I won a science competition and I was sitting in the patent office in Melbourne, pre-internet days, this is early 1990s, going through and we ended up finding a patent of it, a disc that was reflective and the ability for someone else to reverse engineer or to copy that design was too great. So we did not proceed with that invention. However, what that meant is as I was going into secondary school, I had already had a business and an invention and I was encouraged because of my mom and my family and my teachers around me to view the world through a lens of creativity and a lens of solving problems. And so that then led to me having access to mentors and to opportunity in a way that money can't buy. And when I was 20, I met my dad for the first time and I discovered I had six brothers and sisters that I never knew about. And I discovered also that my dad was an inventor and I couldn't believe it from you know, my whole life from being creative and inventing things. That's what his whole life was. And he invented Test Match, the cricket board game. 
he invented- oh, my brother and I used to play that when we were kids because we love cricket so much. Exactly. That's and great. Because of the 1970s and when cricket changed and media came into it and he was living in Melbourne then, that's when he had met my mother, and then he saw that change in the sport, in the industry, in the whole community, and most people have got that game or played it. And same with his electric toothbrush, the oscillating electric toothbrush was his invention as well. And so what that meant is that in my 20s after meeting him, I had a partner in crime and so we would travel the world together and he lived in Hong Kong and he really supported and encouraged me in the same way that my mother had as a child and a teenager uh, to go out and create in the world. So when I was 22, I started my first proprietary limited company and that was selling mailing lists, telemarketing lists, uh, before there was even a thing called email lists. (laughs) And then that has uh, really uh, catalyzed uh, the rest of my life. So I went on to do a master's degree of entrepreneurship and started a digital version of that same company and and teaching and lecturing for 10 years uh, really helped with my thinking in terms of designing business models and having thousands of students over the years that are as passionate as I am, that are fighting for the cause, they know what they've got the solution, but perhaps they've got inventor syndrome and the rose-coloured glasses, the blinkers come on and how do you help people through the, the personal commitment or the uncommitment to know when an idea is no longer an opportunity and my dad uh, ended up on the, the receiving end of corruption in the Philippines and uh, so he, he lost all of his assets, all of his money and there was nothing that I was able to do or that he could do and so that has really affected my desire to understand what is an opportunity and what's not an opportunity and at what point during that chaos is an opportunity born and when does it die and how do you manage that process? And after many, many years of being down a small business path and uh, starting and selling a couple of companies, having failure along the way and all the stories as it goes, I realised that Having access to opportunity is not enough. And this is actually what I learned in the federal election last year and being a candidate and speaking to people in the community, that it's not enough to have access to opportunity. What is needed is for an individual to be in a position to be able to seize that opportunity. And when that's how I ended up going back to university and I'm doing a graduate diploma in psychology at Melbourne right now. And that's why my focus is on healthy minds and healthy business, because you will not have a healthy business unless you as an individual and your community, small and large around you, have the healthy minds and that support mechanism and that social connectedness in place. Yeah, it's such a it's a, such a great uh, inst- like instrumental 
thing to highlight is the healthy mind. You need to be able to prioritize yourself before you can prioritize your business or or anything else that you want to serve and deliver in. And that's one of the things that's really come out of COVID. And with the four businesses that I've started, they all come down to social connectedness. They all come down to generating local business activity. And the two of them are symbiotic and you need the two to operate together. And without healthy businesses, while it may sound cliched, we do not have jobs. We do not have industries, whether it's for-profit, non-profit, whether it's a backyard business, such as the book that I wrote for parents to start businesses with their children, which uh, comes from my four-leaf clovers uh, as a child myself. All of that comes down to the the mental health and the support of people around you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, support's a, it's a big one, isn't it? And you, it's something that we can have in so many different areas. And I think it's great to have your business support as well as, your, your, you know, those people that do support your mind and, and also your physical health and well-being too. One of the things I always encourage people to do that I learned by accident is to have a board of mentors. A lot of people think that their goal is to have a mentor, but that that's not how it works. And rather the way that I go through my life, again, I learned this as a result of my dad. He had cancer and passed away. And because I only had an opportunity to know him for nine years, In that last period of time, I did everything within my power to learn how he sees the world, how he thinks, how he feels, how he behaves. And so even though that's 12 years ago now, I still feel as though he's sitting here behind me and he's in this conversation that I'm having with you right now because I feel him, I hear him uh, as part of the conversation. But it's not just one person. I've adapted that or applied that to even yourself, Catherine, from all of our catch-ups over the years. I I have your voice going through my head and my thoughts as well. So I, I refer to it as a kaleidoscope of mentors. When you have all of these people around you and it helps you be grounded, it helps you have multiple perspectives and hold them at once so that you're able to come through the middle with so much strength and so much insight in a way that's physiologically impossible if you're only you're the only one inside your head. Yeah, that's such a good point. And one of the best sort of terms I've ever heard was sometimes you can have mentors in your life even if they don't know that they're your mentor. So and I love that. It's like that's so true. We don't actually have they don't need to know that that, that uh, they're my mentor. You know, I just need to take on as much and absorb as much information, as content, as resources and action steps as what they provide. So, you know, one of the things that you're talking about with the board of mentors mentors is a very Napoleon Hill talks about it in his Think and Grow Rich and that was 
you know, it's nearly a hundred years old, that book, but it's such a good thing. And his was all around. He had a table of mentors that he would talk to and some were alive, some were dead, you know, and he would sort of go, oh, well, what would, what would Lincoln say to me? And it was like, that is so cool, you know, to be able to just embody these conversations with just because you can understand or you can, you've done the research and understanding how that person operated or we on our own kind of level, not not on an in-depth level, but it's it's a really cool idea. So how did you um how do you really establish those support networks and the ones that you sort of you know create in lots of other ways? But what about the ones that you know you are sort of physically connected with? Uh, how do you establish those and utilize to to create that really solid support foundation? I'd have to say it starts with being curious. And as a lifelong learner and uh, you're seeking to understand before being understood and also when we're talking about entrepreneurship earlier and understanding problems that people have and when you take the time to understand and respectfully so and to really get that insight into how the other person is thinking and feeling then that opens up the conversation and one of the things I learned from growing up in public housing is that I didn't have money to exchange I couldn't pay for tickets to go and see people and and so on and so forth but what I learned is that my insight and my knowledge and my intelligence is or intel is something that I uniquely have that no one else has. And what happens with people who not just founded companies but founded industries and founded ideologies and fundamentally changed the world, they're not necessarily on the ground in the way that you are either in your country. A lot of my mentors come from overseas, from the Philippines and the UK and the US. And so I would catch up with them every year at international conferences and they would wanna know what's happening in Asia Pacific. What's happening with you young people? What's the latest with technology? And so with my students when I'm lecturing at university and I think one of the reasons I have the relationship with the students I do is because I treat them as an equal because we are equal and I learn as much from them as they learn from me. And so what happens is when you're exchanging the information and you're exchanging the support, you're exchanging opportunities with each other and also updating because I'll, I'll call people, maybe I haven't spoken to them in two or three years and I'll give them a phone call or send them an email seemingly randomly just to update them and all the things that have been happening and they love seeing the narrative over years. And one of the people I'm doing a project with at the moment, we met 2004 it would have been and our timing has only come about now in 2020 to jump on board and do a project together and it's been because of that contact over the years and that exchange of information that we've been able to develop that bond and and have that history to trust each other and bring our networks together to make something fantastic. 
Yeah, that's so good. And it is. It's always just leaving those doors open and going, you know, yes, this might just be a friendship. This might just be a good referral or business connector or anything else. But leaving it so not just pigeonholing anything that you have in life and going, yeah, look, let's just keep that com- that dialect going and see see what happens. And, and I love that. It's always just keeping it open. One of my mentors, John Lambert, he, he sadly passed away now. He was from Nebraska. And every time he'd do his world tour, he'd fly to Sydney, but he'd fly down to Melbourne and just to spend two days with me. And he'd do that twice a year. And whenever we caught up, he would open his suitcase and he would have a handful of magazine and newspaper clippings. And so from the last time I saw him until then, every time he saw something, that made him think of me, he would cut it out, put a post-it note on it or write a note as to why it's relevant and he would sit down and run through all the opportunities that he had thought of me for and about over the previous few months. That is just incredible. I love that. What an awesome way to connect and, and keep in contact. And so I'm 22 and I didn't know until John had died, actually, that he was Obama's mentor as well. And so he used to go to dinners at the White House and (laughs) so much of the way that he taught me how to develop relationships and on an international scale, it comes down to John. And while we don't have print magazines in the same way that we used to, I think you've even been on the receiving end, Catherine, of when I've seen an online article and, again, randomly or out of the blue, maybe a few months have passed between us having a chat, and I've sent you a message and said, hey, here's an opportunity for you. Well, this made me think of you. And so I've spent nearly 20 years now in the habit of sharing that information, and it shows that I'm always thinking about people, and that's how I've developed the relationships I have over such a long period of time. Yeah, I think it's such an easy thing to do. And I've got to say, I didn't, I've never, like, I do the same thing. It doesn't matter if I, and I think that the, we've got it so easy now because we can do it so quickly and, um, effectively with social media you know with messenger or you tag someone but it is it's just that reminder but it, it is so good and 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 I find myself I do the same sort of thing is when I see an opportunity even if I'm going through looking at grants or things like that I'll contact other people that I haven't spoken to well sometimes never and I go I heard from through the grapevine you know <laughs> Yes. And it's such a great way just to, to be able to do that. And, yeah, I reckon that's really cool. I didn't know it was a thing, but I'm glad it's a thing, you know. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So, like, why do you feel so driven to serve in the areas that you do with creating healthy minds and healthy businesses? That's such an interesting question. I. I would say if, if we, a lot of people ask about passion and uh, my response is almost the inverse of passion in that what drives me and gets a growl in my voice it, it, or triggers me is when opportunity is taken away from other people. So and that's when I lose it. 
And I, I believe in freedom and freedom of opportunity. And as we said earlier, for everyone to have the support to be in a position to seize it, but it's up to that person whether they do or not. But if someone else takes opportunity away from a person, I come out swinging with a hammer. Oh, that's so good. And but I don't like I can see Lauren and I know Lauren and she's, you know, she's probably like a very small, slight person, but she's absolutely that bulldog, you know, with a dog in her, with a bone in her mouth when there's injustice that needs someone standing up for. And I think that's so such a beautiful trait and something I admire greatly about you. Oh, thank you. I, I like to think the loyalty is is one of my traits and uh, I am fierce and I, I do fight and uh, my Pomeranian, Foster and I, <laughs> get into it together. People say dogs are, are like their owners and we definitely have got the, the energy and the bark in both of us. Yeah, definitely. And so what other sort of personal, you know, if you have any other personal reasons or stories you would like to share that have led you along on this path? Uh, coming back to my dad and his vision and purpose in life was to increase quality of life. The last seven years of his life, he moved from the Hong Kong to the Philippines and I would spend between three to six months a year over there with him because I had digital businesses. I had an office in Melbourne, but I could operate from anywhere in the world. And so I chose to spend time with him. And in Angola City, which is 84 kilometres north of Manila, uh, that's one of the... Uh, the number one sex cities in the world. There's uh, 1,500 girly bars in that region and Dad had ended up buying a sports club and that was one of two venues in the entire area that uh, did not have uh, the girls working there in that way. And so what would happen when we would go out, I was the only young white foreigner in the province and the girls would sit next to me and they would plead and beg and they would cry and ask me if they could, and you can hear it in my voice as I'm reliving it, if they could be my maid or my secretary or if there was any work that they could do for me so that they no longer had to go home with these men. And my dad and his friends would pay for their high schooling and their university and set the locals up in shops, whether it was with a sewing machine or a retail store and a very micro-entrepreneurship type of things. And that's what triggered me to do the economic work that I've done because while dad and his friends helped so many people, and dad indeed, he, he brought lawn bowls to the Philippines, which sounds a bit strange or odd, but he ended up getting the Philippine Sports Commission, the government department, to fund athletes as professional athletes to train. And he brought a lot of people out of poverty through building an industry around all of this. But it still did not solve the systemic issue. 
when the volcano erupted and the airbase pulled out and the economy disappeared them, uh, the women were still going there, leaving their children with their mothers back in their province. And to work in a retail store, you have to have a university degree. The opportunities don't exist. And that's when I did the research and from having completed my Master in Entrepreneurship degree, I spent many years researching um, Schumpeter Innovation Economics and the systemic way of increasing quality of life and of enabling everyone to be in a position to seize opportunity. And that's why it's so personal to me. And I, I made a promise to my dad and I made a promise to these women uh, as well as people in Australia and all of my mentors. And I, I'm responsible for that promise that I've made to find s systemic ways so that people are in a position of choice. That's incredible. I love that. And I think it's such a strong basis of what every business, corporation, organisation, people's lives should be around is to improve the lives of yourself and those around you. Definitely. There's so, there isn't purpose otherwise. No, no, not in my eyes either. So is this why you feel so uh, pulled and driven to also get involved with politics? Definitely, as I have not yet exited a company for $10 million and it's still my plan and aiming for one of the four businesses I've started to be on that list in the next couple of years and they're, they're going very strong so far. Uh, again, looking at the systemic issues, so there's so far you can get with a business and I was interested in politics in my 20s and I really got over the infighting and all the palaver that goes on and I figured I can make greater change and faster in the world by being an entrepreneur and by teaching others entrepreneurship at, at the same time. And in order to have mass effect in that area, you have to have come out the other side again with that $10 million venture scenario uh, and uh, because of uh, different circumstances from dad dying and, and my own, own health, then I really looked at how is this actually going to work? And so I'm doing both at the same time now. Uh, politics isn't a career, it's a vocation. And it's something that you live and you breathe and you believe in and that you fight for. And the chances of anyone getting up are slim to none. There's a handful of people relatively to the population and it's really about being in the right time, the right place and all of those factors. And I can still, and I am driving policy and I'm driving initiatives. And 
the reason I'm running for Melbourne City Council right now is to get mental health on the agenda. There are 59 candidates running for council in the city of Melbourne, and I'm the only one that's putting mental health first on the agenda. Our a Deputy Lord Mayor candidate on our ticket He's got an Order of Australia medal for his work in mental health and trauma. And so the two of us from the leadership ticket and the council ticket are just very helpful leather to do everything within our power. And what I know from having put my hand up, well, I've been through a couple of uh, very tough pre-selections to finally get up as a federal candidate last year, but the impact that that has had on other people is one that I did not expect. And I know that there are people who are running this year because of uh, seeing me doing it and that it's possible. And I had one friend of mine say to me that I told her last year that rather than being a couch Olympian, it was time to put on the sneakers and get out there and do it. And that's motivated her to run this year. Yeah, and that's beautiful. my purpose is to help other people run and to help other people uh, get their businesses out to impact the world, then potentially that's what my life purpose is. So I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'll get up. I don't know if my companies will get up. But I do know that the people around me will. Definitely. And so it's being able to be your best and live your life in the best and powerful way that you can. And it gives people permission just by viewing you. And as we said, I said before, we can be people's mentors even without us knowing that they even exist. I couldn't live with myself if I sat back in 10, 20, 30 years with, with the question, what if? Yeah, what if I died? That's what. Uh, drove me to meet my dad when I was 20. It took me three years. I started when I was 17 and it took me three years to track him down. He, he lived in Hong Kong. So I think it I was a bit of a hard time, especially like pre internet. <laughs> I, I was actually there with the microfilm or microfiche in the electoral office and back in, in the day. But my driving force behind that was what if I left it too late? What if I waited until I was 25, 35, 45? And he had passed away. I imagine if it was a month before I had located it. I could not live with myself. And I feel the same way now when it comes to mental health, it comes to entrepreneurship, uh, my ventures and local speakers is another venture that I've started. And I'm extremely passionate and determined to get this venture up and to affect thousands of people with it because what it does is it, connects event organisers with local speakers who have got insight and intel and community knowledge that they want to share. And particularly when you're looking at COVID, we've lost the opportunity to network. And accidental occurrences, when you bump into someone at the local post office or you go to an event and both of you are going for the same piece of cheese on the table and that starts a conversation. These accidental occurrences are not occurring during COVID. And because having access to the networks that I do and that I got from when I was young and they've just compounded over the decades as I make myself sound older, 
local speakers enabled any community organizer to access such a broad reach of people beyond their own network. And that's when things start to happen in the world. When people connect with people who are new, then we start seeing progress. We start seeing momentum and uh, it catalyzes what I refer to as unimaginable outcomes because they have not yet been invented. Yeah, so true. And it's something that I live and, you know, one of the biggest reasons why I started this is we are so much stronger together. And so when we can have those connections, when we can talk through and build those relationships of being able to support, work, venture, do things, um, then it just creates such a more impactful outcome for everybody involved. Absolutely. Oh, that's great. How can people uh, contact you? How can they hear more about the, the ventures and especially the, your local speakers? How can they get involved but also assist and follow along on your own personal journey and, well, pretty much everything that you're doing? So there's a lot going on there. <laughs> there is. There is. The uh, best way to reach me is with my email address and that's lauren at laurenshearson.com. And at the moment, my website, laurenshurston.com, is diverted to the campaign website. So if you'd like to see what the current policies are and how we plan to bring back Melbourne and bring the culture and the social connectedness as well as generate uh, business activity, it's on there. And once the election is over, regardless of the outcome, I'm pursuing the path with healthy minds and healthy businesses. And I'm on Instagram and on LinkedIn and uh, my campaign page, Lauren Shurston for Melbourne, that's going to continue on because I'm never going to stop fighting for the communities and the individuals and for everyone to again have been in a position and to have the choice to seize opportunities that are in front of them. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us, Lauren. I really love your energy and your determination and your motivation just to get in there and make sure that everybody has someone for to use as their voice to support them through whatever challenges that they have. And there's so much more I could, yeah, that I would love to share and talk to you about. I know you have another appointment and we, we've sort of talked for a while, but I'd love you to come back on at a later stage because there's some great work that you've done uh, with cultural diversity that I'd really love to share with people because I think it's just, uh, it's beautiful and it's such an incredible lesson for everybody to, to take on. Well, thank you, Catherine. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to hear more stories of awesome everyday people helping their communities, then make sure you subscribe to this show. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out to me via email at communityheroespodcast at gmail.com or connect with us on Facebook and Instagram just by searching Community Heroes Podcast. Also, you can connect with me personally on LinkedIn by searching Catherine Mahn, that's C-A-T-H-R-Y-N-M-A-H-O-N. I hope to hear from you soon.